start. Thanks everybody for coming. Um, okay, so this paper is all about looking at changes in the distribution of income over the past few years in Ireland. Um, as Darren said, it's a joint piece of work between Tim Callan, Claire Keane, myself and John Walsh from the SRI along with Brian Nolan of uh, UCD. There's a working paper version of this up on the SRI website. Um, most of the stuff I'll be talking about today is pretty much directly from that paper. Um, so feel free to read it if, you're, if you have any interest in it. But there's some stuff that will flag along the way that isn't in that paper. That's more recent work that's still kind of preliminary as well. So um, I'll flag that along the way. But most of the stuff is in that working paper. Okay, so just to give you an idea of what I'm going to be talking about. Um, I'll start off with just giving a kind of brief summary of some of the key features of the recession over the past few years. Um, I'm going to assume pretty much most people here will be comfortable enough and familiar enough with the stuff I'm talking about there. So I won't spend too long with it. I'll then go on to highlight some of the patterns in the distribution of income over the past few years. Um, I'll touch briefly on some poverty measures too, but the focus of the paper is kind of the income distribution side of things. Um, from there then, we'll go into a bit more detail on the income distribution side of things. We'll look at it from a couple of angles. The first thing we'll do is try to explain what we've observed um, in the overall patterns by decomposing the total inequality by income source, so in other words, what income source is driving the changes we've observed. We'll also have a look at the role of the tax and benefit system. In other words, which, which is it the tax system or the benefit system that's doing most redistribution over the course of the recession. That will be the bulk of the uh, of what I'm talking about. At the end, then, rather than looking at the effect of the recession in general, we'll focus in on the effect of uh, the austerity policies. So in other words, the set of austerity budgets since 2008 and see who has been asked to pay most, essentially, over the course of the recession. If you have any questions or anything along the way, feel free to jump in. Okay, so before we get into the facts and figures, it might just be useful just to kind of highlight the things we usually see during recessions, whether that be previous recessions in Ireland or recessions in other countries. Or another way of saying this, what kind of things should we expect to see over the last few years in Ireland? Well, the most obvious thing to think about in terms of when you uh, talk about recessions is you see an unemployment increase. And you know from reading the papers or listening to the radio or whatever else that unemployment in Ireland over the past few years has significantly increased. So we can have a look in a little bit of detail at that. Wages are a little bit uh, more difficult to predict. I guess in a kind of textbook world, you might expect lower demand in the economy to decrease um, the demand for labour and then put downward pressure on wages. But in reality, we know nominal wages are a little bit more sticky than that. Unions tend to kind of oppose any wage cuts. Employers themselves might be uh, kind of hesitant to cut wages for a, a range of reasons. So it's a little bit more tricky kind of to predict what will happen to wages. So we can look at that. Self-employment income tends to be one of the hardest hit uh, sectors during a recession. Kind of restricted access to credit, lower demand in the economy tend to hit the smaller, smaller firms, smaller businesses. They tend to be the one that kind of the, the pain of the recession is focused on, essentially. Um, the role of self, social welfare and tax is kind of interesting in, in Ireland over the last few years. So again, in a kind of textbook world, you might expect social welfare and tax to act as automatic stabilizers, where as people become unemployed, they pay less tax and they get more unemplo uh, unemployment benefits, social welfare payments. But at the same time, this has been going on, we've had a set of austerity budgets where tax, effective tax rates have been increased and social welfare payments have been cut. So you have things kind of working in the opposite direction, so it'll be interesting to see what the overall impact there is. Okay. So this blue line here, that's the unemployment rate in Ireland since 1995. So I assume most people have seen some this in some form or another. 
since 1995 to the early part of the millennium, we saw this big decrease in unemployment from about 12% down to about 4%. Then it stuck around 4%, a little bit above 4% for about six or seven years during the boom. And then once recession hit around 2007, 2008, we got this huge increase in unemployment. Uh, this series runs through 2011. It's up at around almost 15% there. I think it's down to about 13.2 or 3 at the moment. That's possibly as much to do with uh, emigration as any big, huge increase in labour demand, but maybe a bit of both. But still, relatively high, uh, historically speaking. You can tell a kind of similar story with GDP here. This is GDP per capita in the same, or the same time period. Again, from the mid-90s, we saw this big increase um, in GDP per capita between 2000 and 2007, growth of about 7% per year, one of the fastest-growing economies in the OECD countries. But then again, 2007, it peaks, and from then on, we got this big decrease, decrease of almost 10,000 euros per capita in GDP. So what happened? Well, basically, at a very high-level kind of summary, just kind of three main things that caused this. First, there was the worldwide kind of recession, or certainly the recession in Ireland's main trading partners, the US and the EU. So regardless of kind of the domestic situation in Ireland, we're always going to see a negative impact of that. But as it turns out, the domestic situation wasn't really set up to deal with this recession, and we had a crash in the construction sector, property prices collapsed, and a related banking crisis. So all those things together kind of... Um, combined to, to cause these patterns we see here. If we look at a little bit more detail at unemployment, here I have it separated out by gender. And this is only one from 2003 now. We can see during the boom years, by gender, pretty much unemployment about the same level, a little higher among males, but uh, about the same. But then recession hit, and you can see the unemployment rate among males uh, increased by about twice as much as it did about, uh, among females. The main reason for that is the collapse in the construction sector. So um, Claire Keane, one of the co-authors in this paper, one of her PhD papers looked at um, the dropout rate from education among males and females and where they were going essentially. So she found that males during the uh, boom were a lot more likely to drop out of education or not go into third level education, but instead go off and work in the construction sector. So the flip side of that is when the construction se sector uh, collapsed, you have a whole lot of unemployed young males who are at the poor education level, so they're not really going to fall into another job. So that's kind of, that explains, I'd say, the chunk of that, that pattern we're seeing. <coughs> okay, so this is wages then. This is the change in the average hourly wage between 2008 and 2012. The red lines obviously a decrease in the average hourly wage, green lines an increase in the hourly wage, and by different sectors of the economy there. And the first thing you'd notice is that there's quite a degree of variation across different sectors. So there's some that are, uh, the wages are dropping, some that the wages are increasing. So you'll notice those are quite small. So here we have finance, uh, finance and insurance, construction, accommodation, and food. So all those are experiencing a decrease in the average hourly wage. <coughs> but on the far side, we have the sectors such as manufacturing is the, the furthest one over the highest growth, uh, wholesale, retail. We also have education in there, which uh, you might kind of find surprising given education is a public sector, a dominated sector. What we think is going on there is that there's a compositional change. So the lower earning people in education have been let go during the recession. People like special needs assistance, basically. So the lower earners are let go, so the higher earners are left. And that's why we're seeing the increase in wages. Okay, of course, now 
that doesn't tell the whole story of these sectors. If I put up the changes by the numbers employed in each section, you get a totally different story. Like the numbers employed in, constru in construction to vary the way down to the floor, basically. Like, so this is just purely the wages, not, not the numbers employed. Okay, so what's happened to overall inequality? These are the Gini coefficients based on equivalized household disposable income to the usual approach, basically. And there's two things to note from this series, basically. The first is that whether you take 2007 as the start of the recession or 2008 as the start of the recession, by the time you get back to 2011, you're pretty much back to where you started. A small drop in inequality from 2007, a small increase in inequality from 2008. But overall, given the scale of the, the recession, the scale of the macro changes going on behind us, not much of a change in overall inequality. Yeah. Disposable income, equivalent household disposable income. Yeah. Uh, the second thing to note then is in 2009, we have a very low gene kind of relative to the rest of the years. There's a previous work by Brian Nolan that showed that even if I extended that series back to the 80s, the 2009 figure would still look really, really low. It's, I think it's the only year that the genies dropped below 0.3. So uh, I'll come back to why, why that might be the case in a while. But overall, we can see not much change. So then it's at the end of the story, there wasn't much change in inequality. So we can dig a little deeper to, to find out. <coughs> okay, so the first thing we do, this is a decile share analysis. Okay, so basically, we split the population into 10 equal groups according to income. That's what the decile is. So the bottom <coughs> decile is the poorest 10% of people. The top decile is the richest 10% of people. And we say how much of total income, again, it's equivalent to household disposable income, that each decile owns. So... That 3.5 there means in 2008, the poorest 10% of people owned 3.5% of total uh, equivalent disposable income. Okay, come down here at the bottom, the richest 10% of people in 2008 owned almost a quarter of income. Okay, so there's a lot of numbers there, so we can take it kind of on a year-by-year -year basis. So the early part of the recession, moving from 2008 to 2009, first thing you notice, the richest 10% of people have a much smaller share of total income, okay? They've lost over one percentage point in share of total income. Everybody else gets a gain in total income, okay? So pretty much the early part of the recession, the richest folks seem to be the ones that have been hit first, okay? We then move on in time, compared to 2010, you can see almost the exact opposite, not, not exactly the opposite, but almost there. The richest 10% of people now have gained their share of total income, disposable income, and everyone else pretty much loses. There's one decile that doesn't lose. It's only by 0.1. One of them doesn't lose, I can't see it. But it's pretty much the opposite. So 2009, Lorenz dominates 2008, <coughs> and 2010 doesn't Lorenz dominate 2009, but it's almost there. So that's, we can start to see now why the genie in 2009 is so low. Okay, we'll come back to that again, but we're starting to get a feel for what's going on. If you look over the entire period then, the biggest losers, are the poorest 10% and the richest 10%, both of whom have lost 0.5% share of total income. Okay, everybody else has gained bar the fifth decile, so it's a small little drop, but pretty much everyone else has either stayed the same, maintained their share of total income, or, or uh, gained. Okay, but of course, we're working in shares here the whole year, so we're taking each year separately and working how is total income divided out among the deciles. Of course, from year to year, total income itself is falling, whereas the cake is being divided out differently by the size of the cake is shrinking in each year. So to take account of that, we need to go just look at um, changes in real income. Okay, so this is the 
change in real income between 2008 and 2011. Square column is the one that we kind of be most interested in. So while both the bottom decile and the top decile both lost 0.5% a share in terms of real income because the bottom decile is starting from such a smaller base that translates into a much bigger loss for the bottom decile. So they're losing almost 20% of income. The top decile is losing over 10%. And everyone else, while they're gaining share, of course they're not gaining an income, they're just losing less than the others. Okay. Overall, a fall of about 8% between 2008 and 2011. Okay, so that's a kind of a summary of the income distribution side of things. We move on to poverty now. Um, there's three different measures of poverty we use here. The first is the at-risk of poverty measure. Um, it's just a purely income-based measure. You find out what 60% of median income is and calculate the percentage of people that have income below that poverty line. So the poverty line is 60% of median income. You can also use the deprivation rate then, which moves away from the income-based kind of poverty rate here. There's 11 indicators of what are considered kind of social norms. So basically, can you, um, you're asked, can you afford two pairs of shoes and can you afford a waterproof jacket and can you afford to heat your home, that type of thing. There's 11 of those questions and if you can't afford to do two of them, you're consider, considered um, deprived, basically. And again, it's just a percentage of total people who, who can't afford two of these 11 indicators. The consistent poverty rate then is just a combination of two. So if you're at risk of poverty and you're considered deprived, then you're considered consistent consistently uh, poor. <coughs> so if you want, can you afford two pairs of shoes or do you have two pairs of shoes? I think you're asked, do you have it? And if you don't have it, is it you're asked, is it because you can't afford it? So if you don't want two pairs of shoes, then would you have a million dollars in your account or whatever? Then you're not, you know, deprived. Mm. Good point. So as long as you don't have them and you can't afford So this is the um, at-risk of poverty measure, the, the income-based measure, this, and this blue line shows for the entire population from 2005 to 2011, okay? So the later years of the boom and the earlier years of the recession, poverty seems to be decreasing. So all the way to 2009, it's, it's on the way down, basically. From 2009 onwards, it seems to be increasing a little bit again. So that kind of reflects what we saw earlier. In 2009, the rich were losing out, and then from 2009 on, the poor started to get hit, so poverty started to increase. Yeah. It's always persons, but it's household income. Okay, gotcha. Uh, silk. Sorry. This this is this sort of stuff comes straight off the CSO. They use silk for it. The more uh, in-depth analysis is just we use the RMF of silk in each in each separate year. Uh, so I'm going to show you now different groups of the population, the same at-risk of poverty measure here. This is the working age population. Okay, so pretty much the same kind of, kind of pattern. Okay, it's a bit of a more significant decrease of poverty in the early years of recession, increasing a little bit more in the later years of recession, but no, nothing hugely different. This is uh, children. Okay, So again, this is household income. Of course, a lot of children won't have their own income. It's household income even. Uh, a higher level but a kind of similar enough pattern. If we're again, poverty rate decreasing uh, through the boom in the early years of recession from 2007 to 2008, from 2008 on, a small little increase kind of maintaining pretty much where it was. The one group that's different is the older folk, over 65s. So it jumps around before, but 
from the start of the session this year, 2007. Moving into 2008, a huge decrease. In 2009, still decreasing. In 2010, still decreasing. Okay. Uh, 2010 to 11, then it's, it starts to increase a little bit. But over 65 seem to be protected a bit more relative to other people certain the effects of the recession. Okay, and I'll come back to that again in a little bit more. Um, these are the other measures. So the, this row here, the top row, the risk of poverty, that's just there the numbers behind the graph I just showed you. The deprivation rate um, is a little bit different throughout the recession from 2010 on. It seems to be increasing quite significantly, a lot more than the risk of poverty measure. Why might that be? It could be that, um, well, people's income above the poverty line is falling. It's not falling so much that it drops them below the poverty line. But if they have huge housing costs from, like if they're taking out a mortgage essentially uh, during the Kelty Tiger, they have these huge housing costs and their income's falling, not falling enough to make them uh, at risk of poverty, but falling enough so they can't afford these 11 um, indicators of deprivation. That's probably what's going on there. Yeah, that's right. And if we, an alternative measure to the a risk of poverty is exactly what you're saying. When you fix the poverty line in a certain year and then just let the incomes, income distribution move around and you see what you're saying there. When you <coughs> fix the poverty line, um, income, our poverty seems to increase. Okay, and then the consistent poverty rate, it's, it's a lot lower. The same pattern kind of as the risk of poverty, but a lot lower, which kind of suggests that there's a subset of people that are both at risk of poverty and deprived, but there's a large subset of people that are one or the other. So just because you have low income doesn't mean you can't afford these 11 uh, basic indicators, or just because you can't afford these 11 basic indicators doesn't mean you have low income. Okay, so there's uh, quite a bit of difference between the two. Okay, so we're going to a bit more detail now on the income distribution side of things. Um, this, this is the number we saw already. Okay, this is the, sh the change in share between 2008 in 2011 for the bottom decile. So we saw the bottom decile loss, 0.5 percentage point share of total income. Okay, we saw that already. Well, the rest of the columns are showing you is what caused that fall in income or what caused the change in, in, in share of total income. So for the bottom decile, employment income, whether it's coming from employees or self-employment, seems to fall and they're not very much compensated by transfers, social transfers. Okay, so their income is falling, but they don't seem to be compensated by um, social transfers. It's not that they're not getting them, it's, not, it's just that they're not getting more of them to make up for the falling income. Okay. If we go up a little higher in the income distribution, again, um, employment income is falling for both, for all the way up to the sixth decile. But now uh, that falling employment income has been offset by an increase in transfer payments. Okay. If we go up a little higher, uh, up the income distribution, it's a little bit different. Now employment income making up a higher share of total of the share for each decile. Okay, self-employment income falling now as you, as you would expect. But now the taxes are um, taken, are offsetting that increase in employment income for the higher people. So in other words, the richer people are paying a lot more taxes in 2011 than they were in 2008. 
One thing you might be surprised to see there is a positive number for transfers for the highest deciles. Why would the richest people be getting an increased amount of social transfers? Included in that column is lump sum payments. So basically if you get a redundancy payment or you get a retirement lump sum, it's included in that transfer. So that you're pushing households that otherwise wouldn't be in the top deciles. You give them a big lump of money and you're all of a sudden pushing them up to deciles. So that's why we're seeing the positive impact of transfers. If you take those out, those numbers kind of go away, but the rest of the pattern stays the same. Okay. But what are we most interested there? The reason we're doing this is to see which income source is contributing most to overall inequality. Okay. So with this, this is a Sharrock's decomposition. The idea is you decompose overall inequality into the portion of that e inequality contributed by e each income source. So basically a positive number means that income source is um, having a disequalizing effect on the overall distribution of income. A negative number means that that income source is reducing inequality. Okay? So in 2008, for example, 63% of overall inequality is explained by the distribution of employee income. Okay? So what is the overall pattern here? Well, moving from 2008 to 2011, the distribution of employee income is contributing a lot more in, uh, to overall inequality. Self-employed income, while still increasing inequality, is having a smaller effect in 2011 because there's less of it, basically. Um, and then other income, such as this would be kind of rent and investment income, things like that, that's contributing to uh, inequality as well. This is gross employee income. So if you think about the, um, the distribution of gross employee income before you take off any taxes, that would be more unequal than the um, distribution of disposable income. So basically, if we just had employee income, the quality would be higher, but it would be an offset by the tax system. Okay. Um, okay, so this is a kind of a commonly used approach to decomposing inequality. But one funny thing, showing up is the benefits uh, column there. What's that saying is that the benefit system in both 2008 and 2011 is having essentially no effect on reducing inequality. It's actually increasing inequality according to this. Now you might say that's because of the lump sums in there, but even if we take them out, we're still getting this kind of null effect of the benefit system. So it's saying the tax system is significantly reducing inequality, but the benefit system is essentially doing nothing, which is a bit strange. So we looked into that. There's a paper um, about five or six years ago now in the Journal of Development Economics that kind of looks at a similar type of thing. I'm just going to read out this point. This is an, uh, one of the assumptions of this Sharrock's decomposition. So it says, a given income source makes no contribution to aggregate inequality if every household receives equal income from that source. In other words, if tomorrow every household in Ireland received a cheque for a million euros, inequality would not change. Okay, that's an assumption of that model which seems uh, ludicrous, basically. The technical reason for that... Okay. Sorry. The technical reason for that is these numbers um, are based on the share of total income of this income source, the um, inequality of the distribution of that income source, so essentially the Gini coefficient for this income source, and the correlation between the distribution of this income source and the distribution of total disposable income. And that last part, if you give everyone a million euro, the correlation between the distribution of that income source and total inequality is zero. So it drops out. Okay, that's the technical reason. 
which is not really, it's counterintuitive basically, it's not really uh, what you would expect. So there's an alternative approach um, to this. This is basically, it comes, it, it comes from, because of this, we want to, what we want to do is see whether the tax system or the benefit system is having a greater effect in reducing inequality, okay? The Sharif's decomposition suggests that all the tax system is doing everything and the benefit system is doing nothing. But we suspect that's wrong. So this is an alternative, basically. We start off with market income. So market income is basically anything you get from employment plus anything you get from renting out properties, um, anything you get from the market, basically, okay? You get the gross, then you add in the benefit system, okay? So you get from market to gross, you add in the benefit system, then you get from gross to disposable, you take away the taxes you pay, okay? So a very simplified version is, you get from market to gross, you give money to the uh, low earners or the zero earners, and then you get from gross to disposable, you take away the taxes from the higher earners, okay? And the idea here is that you compare the uh, distribution of income under each of these definitions of income, and you see, well, does inequality drop more when you take away the taxes, or does inequality drop more when you add in the benefits? And so it's a kind of simple enough approach. And these are the numbers. So these numbers here are the Gini coefficient under each of these definitions of income, okay, under in 2009-2011. So as you would expect, uh, the distribution of market income is very unequal. There'll be a lot of people that don't have any market income. So kind of retired people that are living off the state pension won't have any market income, unemployed people won't have any market income. Um, the final column over there is kind of our destination, kind of where we want to get to. Those are, that's the genie under disposable income that I showed you earlier. I just have it rounded to two decimal points now. Uh, before I had it rounded to three decimal points, so the same numbers as I showed before. And the middle part is how we get there. So basically we add in the gross, uh, or we get the gross income, we add in the benefits we're almost there. We've gone from 0.52 down to 0.36 in 2008. We've gone from 0.59 down to 0.38 in 2011. Um, and then the tax system knocks off another little bit of the gene. So what this suggests, um, counter to what Sharrock's decomposition suggests, is that the benefit system is doing a lot more than the tax system. Now you might say I'm biased in the results because what I could do is take market income then take off taxes to give me what's called net income, and then add in the benefits. But if I do that, I get the same result. That's not a general result. Now, in, in there are circumstances where it'll, it'll be different, but in our case, we did it both ways, and the result holds. <coughs> so from those numbers, we can calculate what's known as a Reynolds-Smolensky index. Now, despite the very grand title, a Reynolds-Smolensky index is simply that number there minus that number there. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point, yeah. Thanks.
Um, okay, so these are the Reynolds-Smolensky indices. So basically it just shows how much redistribution is happening by the transfer system and how much redistribution is happening by the tax system and then the combination of the two. And you can see in each of the years, 2008 to 2011, the transfer system is doing about three times the work that the um, tax system is doing. Okay. So in each of the years, the overall, the effect of the tax and transfer system is increasing throughout the recession, so it's doing more work during the recession in terms of income redistribution but the relative importance of the two is staying pretty constant. Okay. So there's two opposite results, this, the Shorrocks in the, uh, decomposition and then this alternative approach, two different results, which do you choose? Well, we would suggest this approach because, this, because of that reason I discussed with the Shorrocks um, decomposition. Okay, so that was all the um, so the general effect of the recession, essentially change in composition of employment and everything else that goes on with a uh, recession. What we want to do now is look at the effect of the austerity budgets over the past um, six or so years. So it's been six or seven austerity budgets, essentially where the main motivation is to cut expenditure and to um, raise income. So what we want to do here now is look at who's been hit most in terms of different groups of the population whose income has been reduced by most um, due to these austerity budgets. So the way we do this is we use um, SWITCH, which is a tax benefit micro simulation model uh, in the SRI. For anyone who's unfamiliar with that, basically uh, what that is, is you take a big data set of individuals in for, at the moment, SWITCH is based in Silk 2010. From Silk 2010, you can tell a person's income, a person's household composition, age, and whatever else you need to determine what uh, benefits they're entitled to and what tax they should be paying. From there, you can, so you, you have the situation as it is in 2010. You can then change the policy parameters so you can change tax rates so they match what happened in 2008 and see what tax and benefits they should be paying. Do the same for 2011 and you can compare the two distributions of income to see what the effective policy is. That's a very simplified version of what micro simulation is, but that's basically what we're doing. Okay, so I'm splitting here the set of austerity budgets um, into kind of two different groups. The first group is the two budgets, budgets 2009, so there's a budget in October 2008 and then there's a supplementary budget in April 2009. Those two are kind of the first budgets in the, uh, in the recession period. So we're taking those as one group and then the rest up to 2013 um, as the second group. We haven't got 2014 in yet, so that's coming soon but up to 2013. There's a couple of reasons I'm, doing, I'm splitting them in that way. First reason is the overall adjustment in those two sets of budgets was about the same. We have about four billion worth of adjustment in, in capture and switch in those two different sets of budgets. Okay, so there's only two budgets in the first, there's more in the second group, so the kind of the adjustment was kind of front-loaded, as you might have heard. Um, so that's one reason we've split the two budgets in that way. The other reason I'll get to. Okay, so this is these are the main changes in terms of tax and uh, welfare payments in the in the early set of budgets. In the October 2008 uh, budget, a lot of social welfare rates were actually increased, uh, relatively increased. So they were increased by in and around three percent a lot of payments. Um, in the supplementary budget, then there was some cuts for some other um, welfare payments. But overall, those two set of budgets, a lot of uh, welfare payments are actually increased. On the tax side of things, we had the introduction and um, increase of these levies, the income levy, 
um, and the health levy so people are liable for more PRSI so essentially the effective tax rate was being increased so in the early set of budgets we have welfare increases but also tax increases the second set of budgets then um, is basically more what we're kind of used to now welfare rates being cut and effective tax rates being increased the income tax rate itself hasn't been changed but tax credits have been decreased and bans decreased and the universal social charge put in so the effective tax rates increased we also have the property tax uh, covered in there. One thing to note on the welfare side of things, the only, pretty much the only social welfare payment that hasn't been changed is the pension, the old age pension, state pension. That hasn't been changed. Okay, so it was increased in the early set of budgets. And while all the rest of the working age payments were cut, the pension rate was maintained. Okay. Yeah, that's right, actually, yeah. But I think from memory, I don't think that's captured in switch, so you say right, but um, I think still relative to the rest of the cuts, that's still a very small cut. But you're right in what you're saying, actually, what I should be saying is it wasn't maintained, but yeah, it, it was relatively protected, maybe it might be a better use of words there. I don't think we have the Christmas bonus in switch. I'm not sure, I'd have to check. Maybe, but yeah. Uh, no, we don't use current income. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So we also then have the um, public sector pay cuts. So I'm sure everyone's well aware of what they were. Basically, um, <laughs> the more you earn, the more you paid, essentially. So we won't go into details there. We all know what they are. But they're all very progressively structured. Initially, there was the PRD, which was essentially a pay cut, and then there was more. Uh, explicit pay cuts. Okay. So this is the distributional impact of the first set of budgets, the two 2009 budgets. So this, again, by decile, this is the percentage change um, in equivalised household disposable income as a result of these budgets. So BC is the poorest, 10% over there is the richest 10% of people. And you can see, with the slight exception of the first and second decils, it's very much progressively structured. Okay, the, the richest people are paying most poorest people are paying less, a little bit of something going on there, but by and large, a very much progressive kind of set of, set of budgets. This is the next set of budgets, okay, from 2010 to 2013. Not exactly the opposite, you couldn't say that's totally regressive, but uh, not far off. The smallest losses are the, at the top of the income distribution, the biggest losses are at the bottom. The second and third decils seem to be um, <coughs> kind of relatively protected to the decils around it. That's mainly because uh, these decils are kind of made up of the over 65s, basically. So people on the state pension, a lot of these decils are those people. Okay, so they've been relatively protected. Their income is still falling because they still have to pay like property tax and all that sort of thing. But they're being relatively protected when, um, compared to those around. And then overall, um, it's kind of harder to say whether this is progressive or regressive or neutral or whatever. I guess the biggest losses are at the top. The decils 9 and 10 have been asked to pay more than everyone else. The biggest loss, or the smallest losses, sorry, are towards the bottom. Again, decils 2 and 3 kind of relatively protected than those around. Um, so you might say it's kind of broadly progressive, but then if you ignore decils 9 and 10, just look at the rest of the distribution, that's not really progressive, that's more like neutral kind of. Um, but then if you ignore decile one, 
some of that looks a lot more progressive, though it kind of depends what you're interested in. You can't really say this is a progressive setup or just whatever, but by and large, I think it's fair to say broadly progressive. The biggest losses at the top, smallest losses towards the bottom. Okay. Okay, then the last thing I want to look at. Um, this comes from a paper Tim, Tim Callan did, um, looking at comparing the austerity budgets across Europe. There's a lot of networking paper I talked about at the start, but this, again, is the same um, decile impact of, of the austerity set of budgets. We only got to 2012 there, split out by different household types. So this particular red line here is the overall impact, kind of similar to what we just seen. But basically the point of this uh, graph is this line here. This is households with an elderly person in it. So again, people around uh, this part of the income distribution, people that purely rely on the state pension, um, would be in and around that part of the distribution and they seem to be relatively protected to everyone Okay. Now bear in mind that is only 2012, so um, most recent uh, measures won't be included in that. Okay, so just to sum up, what do uh, we see? The general effect of the recession, the biggest losers seem to be those right at the very top of the income distribution and those right at the very bottom of the income distribution in terms of share. They both lost 0.5% of, of share of total income. In terms of re real losses, those at the very bottom seem to have lost most. Uh, the terms, the, in terms of public policy itself, the set of austerity budgets, the greatest um, losses have been th those at the top of the income uh, distribution. The, the, those at the bottom seem to have lost relatively little, but as you've seen, it's not purely progressive or regressive or neutral or whatever you want to call it. So, uh, any degree of progressivity within the overall package is totally driven by the early budgets. Okay, so the early budgets were very much progressive. The rest weren't, basically. So overall, we have this kind of mixed um, pattern. Budget 2014, the one that's just gone, uh, we don't have any of that in there. That hasn't been included. There's, we have a piece coming out in the QEC, which will be out before Christmas, which will include some analysis on that. Um, that might have been a bit less pro uh, over 65s than the rest of the set of budgets. So it could counter some of the stuff I'm saying there, but um, the analysis that's coming soon, I have nothing to say on that basically yet. That's it. Thank you. Okay, are there any questions or comments from Mark, please?